Well, most of you will know by now, we've prayed for it already, that in the past week the date for the general election was finally set um, for May the 6th. And between now and then, we are going to be bombarded, I guess, by the major political parties looking for our vote. And some commentators have already predicted that this election campaign is going to be more and more like a presidential campaign, in keeping with previous ones. And a huge factor in each of the major parties is going to be the personality of their leader. Got sort of the shot of three of them behind me there. And the question is presented to us in very simple terms, really, who do you trust the most to serve as Britain's leader in these troubled and uncertain times? Is it Gordon Brown? Is it David Cameron? Is it Nick Clegg? See, for good or ill, there is going to be an enormous amount of attention paid on the personalities of each of these men. Which one can lead the country out of recession? Who's going to be able to lead the country in foreign policy in an unpredictable world? Who's going to take the most care of our natural resources? See, in a sense, you could describe the general election that's coming up as sort of the country's search for a leader who's worth following, worth entrusting the country to. The question is, who can lead us through difficult, troubled times? And perhaps it's not a surprise that the same question was on the lips of the early Christians living at the end of the first century AD, the people who formed the original readership of the book of Revelation. And over the next two weeks, we're going to explore together the opening three chapters of this difficult book, this famous book. And specifically, we're going to focus on the vision of the risen Jesus that the Apostle John received on the island of Patmos. Because see, the first century world that those early Christians lived in, it was a world that was growing more and more hostile towards Christians. Those original readers of Revelation were living in troubled and uncertain times that, that put the times we live in sort of to shame. In fact, a wave of terrible persecution was about to hit these Christians. The most commentators believe that John received his vision in sort of the mid-90s AD, near the end of the reign of the emperor Domitian. And it was during this emperor's reign that failure to honour the emperor as a god became a political offence. And you could be punished for not worshipping the emperor. And so up to that point, the Roman Empire had actually provided quite a bit of stability for the early Christians. That it actually benefited the spread of the gospel enormously. The Christians were able to take the gospel through Roman trade routes and they were actually afforded a bit of protection by Roman authorities from their Jewish opponents. And we see that happening in the book of Acts again and again. That was sort of written in the mid-60s AD. But increasingly, since at least the reign of Nero the early Christians began to face persecution from the Roman authorities. And under Domitian, that persecution began to gather momentum. And it was against that atmosphere of a hostile world, of persecution already, and more persecution to come, that John received this vision, verse 19, of what is now and what will take place later. And I hope we saw when Edith read Revelation 1 to us a few minutes ago, this is quite a vision. 
It's sort of awe-inspiring if we let it impact us. It's a vision of the risen Jesus and you could almost say it is a frightening vision. Because John here comes face to face with the all-powerful Son of God in all his resurrection glory and all his majesty. And verse 17, we've got John's reaction to that encounter. Let me read verse 17 for us. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. See, this is a terrifying experience for John. But we need to see, as John saw, that it is only this risen Jesus, in all his majesty and power, who can lead his people through the time of persecution that was coming. See, John needed to see something of the power and the glory of Jesus if he was to truly understand that his future and the future of all the early Christians was completely secure in the hands of Jesus. The Christians John was writing to needed to know who the risen Jesus was. And today, Christians sitting here today need to know who the risen Jesus is if we're going to trust in him and if we're going to know that actually our lives are secure in his hands, even when we might struggle to believe that. But we need to be clear that living in 21st century Britain, we we actually should be wary of drawing too many close parallels between the situation John's readers find themselves in and the situation we're in today. Because clearly we don't face the same level of persecution that John's readers did or that huge numbers of Christians do across the world in countries like North Korea, Saudi Arabia, China. But what we do share with John's readers is that every Christian here this morning, at some point in their lives, will face the same sort of question John and his readers faced. Is God really in control of my life when everything seems to be spinning out of control? Can I really trust that God's purposes for me are good when people around me tell me that they are not Again, we just need to think a little bit about our own experience. If you're a Christian here today, that Christians routinely face ridicule and even hostility from a world that rejects the message of Jesus. And then you just have to think, well, if God is meant to be on our side, why do so many bad things happen to professing Christians? Why do Christians get sick? Why do their children get sick? Why do Christians face discrimination in the workplace? Why do Christian marriages face difficulties? Why do Christian marriages sometimes break down? Why do Christians so often feel discouraged, depressed, even lost when they try and discern God's will for their lives? Is God really in control of my life? Can I really trust that God's purposes for me are good? Those are questions that will hit every believer at some point in their lives. Maybe they have hit you recently. And those are the questions facing those seven churches that John is writing to. And this vision from the risen Jesus is designed to help us answer those questions. Jesus appears to John in order to encourage a generation 
of beleaguered Christians. Is God in control of our lives, they ask. John tells them, yes, he is. God is in control. He is reigning over this world in the person of his son Jesus, who has risen and ascended into heaven. And Jesus reveals his glory to John. So John can pass that message on to other Christians. Pass it on to those Asian Christians. Pass it on to us reading his prophecy today. And we need to say that in many ways it's not a comfortable vision of Jesus we get here. In fact, seeing the glory of the risen Jesus is a terrifying experience for John. But John's convinced while it might not be comfortable, We can take comfort from the risen Jesus' power and his majesty. And we need to see him in his glory as he reveals himself to John if we're going to be able to trust him in our lives, to follow him for the rest of our lives and to make him known in a world that actually denies his power, denies his relevance, denies his goodness. So let's turn to John's vision now. Now, There's some debate today about who the John is in Revelation 1 who receives this vision. But the vast majority of early Christians identified him as John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee. And that John, he was one of the very first disciples called by Jesus during his earthly ministry. And along with Peter and James, he formed part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. And the Gospel of John refers to him as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is a man who knew Jesus well, knew intimately during his ministry on earth. But by the time we meet John on the island of Patmos in verse 9 here, about 60 years have passed since Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension. And John is an old man now. He survived persecutions that came before. The persecutions of the Emperor Nero that claimed the lives of so many Christians, including Peter and the Apostle Paul. And now here he was, in exile on Patmos, verse 9, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, preparing himself to live through yet more troubles and uncertain times for the early church. You see, John had known Jesus well during his earthly ministry. And yet, even he could have been forgiven for beginning to doubt whether Jesus' followers could survive yet another onslaught of persecution from the Roman Empire. See, John had known Jesus well, but he needed to be reminded, as we all need to be reminded again and again, of just who Jesus really is, if he was going to be able to go on trusting in him. John needed a fresh vision of the risen Jesus. And that's exactly what he gets in verses 9 to 20. And not only for his benefit, but for our benefit this morning. So I believe that that in this vision, John learns or relearns two vital things about Jesus from his vision here. We're going to spend most of our time on the first one before we're going to touch briefly on the second, but the first vital truth that John learns about the risen Jesus here 
is that the risen Jesus is a majestic king. Again, we just need to think who it is who's receiving this vision. This is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who had spent three years of his life with Jesus, who reclined next to Jesus at the Last Supper. He's a man who was very familiar with Jesus. He knew him. He loved him. And yet, when he is confronted here with the risen Jesus in all his majesty and power, verse 17, when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. He is overawed by the risen Jesus. And as we read this description, we should be overawed also. Let me just look at the way John does describe Jesus in verses 10 to 16. We don't have time to look at all of this in detail, but they sort of contribute one on top of the other to this sort of portrait of majesty and power. And it's worth noting that actually the description we get here, it's rich in symbolism and it shouldn't be taken as a literal description of Jesus' physical appearance in heaven. Instead, John gives us a succession of images to sort of convey something of the glory he witnessed. So verse 10, that Jesus' voice is described as like a trumpet and then verse 15, like the sound of rushing waters. And both those images suggest authority and, and great power that Jesus' voice is a voice we should listen to. Then look at verse 14. His eyes are like blazing fire. Nothing and no one, John says, can hide from Jesus. This risen Jesus sees everything. Look at verse 15. His feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace. The risen Jesus, he's strong, he's dependable, he cannot be shaken. Then verse 16, out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus' words cut to the core of who we are. We're going to see that when we turn to chapters 2 and 3 next week. And the power of his words as he speaks to his people. But taken all together, verses 10 to 16, it's this portrait of Jesus that is breathtaking in, in its majesty, in its power. And John is left in no doubt this Jesus is, is a majestic king he is beholding here. And Jesus tells John that he exercises that kingship in at least two ways, that he wants his followers to know about and be reassured of. And the first thing Jesus shows John here is that he reigns over all earthly rulers. That's in verse 5. Verse 5's description of Jesus. Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus wants John to know he is the ruler over all earthly authority. And when you think about that, that is an astonishing claim for the early Christians to make about Jesus. So you've got to remember that Jesus had been crucified by the Roman authorities as a common criminal. And now here the early Christians are claiming that that same Jesus is in fact the ruler of the kings of the earth, including Caesar himself, including the very Roman authorities 
who were about to imprison and execute the Christians John is writing to. It's an astonishing claim to make. It sounds crazy that this crucified Jesus is now the king over every ruler. But John is convinced that's not just an astonishing claim, it is true. And Christians need to see that. John needed to see it and we need to see it today. Because you need to remember, the Apostle John had seen Jesus arrested and crucified. He'd seen him dead and buried. He'd witnessed what looked like the complete defeat of all God's plans to rescue a people for himself. And then, Jesus rose from the grave. John saw him. John touched him. John ate with him. And John knew what Jesus' resurrection meant. That the very moment where Jesus looked like he'd been defeated, he had actually won his greatest victory over sin and over death. With the result that Jesus told his followers, including John in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it's this Jesus that John sees in Revelation 1. And it's this Jesus that John wants his Christian readers to know as they prepare for persecution. Jesus is now the ruler of the kings of the earth. And that means that one day, Caesar himself will have to answer to Jesus. The Roman emperor Domitian looks like he's in control, John is telling the Christians. It looks like he could do whatever he wants to you and he'll get away with it. But actually that's not true. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And one day there will be a reckoning for the things that are happening to you. John, John knows that we need to see that. We need to see that one day there will be justice in this world. That every power that abuses that power, every authority that is corrupt, every dictator that seems to get away with it, will one day have to stand before the risen Jesus and give an account of what they have done. No one will get off scot-free, Jesus tells John here. Whether it's a Roman emperor or a European dictator, whether it's Idi Amin or Slobodan Milosevic, Jesus, John learns here, is the ruler of the kings of the earth. There will be justice because he is the ruler. And we can take comfort from that when we seem to be denied justice here and now. And another aspect of Jesus' kingship that John celebrates here is that he is king over life and death. Once again, we see that demonstrated in the events of the first Easter Sunday. Verse 5 tells us Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, the first person to defeat death, to endure death and come out the other side. But again, that phrase, firstborn, suggests that he won't be the last. Jesus has paved a way 
for everyone who trusts in him to also overcome death. Because that is what Jesus has done. Every individual who puts their trust in Jesus gets to share in that victory over death. See, these Christians needed to know this. Even death itself could not separate them from Jesus. Even those violent persecution could not drive a wedge between them and the love of God demonstrated in Jesus. Just look at Jesus' description of himself in verse 18. He says, I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. It's a great image there. Jesus holds the keys. He decides who goes in and who goes out. He's the one who is in control. No enemy, no power can stand against Jesus. Not even death, we learn here. He has defeated them all. Jesus is a majestic king, John discovers. But I wonder, as you read over verses 10 to 16, how you sort of react to that vision of Jesus. How you respond to this picture of the risen Jesus in all his majesty. Because I wonder, are you frightened or intimidated by this Jesus? So often it is seeing Jesus in his earthly ministry that sort of draws us to him. His gentleness with children. His acceptance of the poor and the marginalised. Isn't this Jesus just a bit too scary? Is he somehow different to that other Jesus? Well, no. If you look at verse 13, he is still like a son of man. Jesus' favourite description of himself on earth. This is the same Jesus But in a sense, we actually should be frightened by the risen Jesus. We actually shouldn't saunter into his presence as we so often do and just imagine that Jesus is our mate, our buddy. See, there is a place for awe in the Christian life. John experiences that here. And he wants us to see it too. See, put simply, Jesus is the Son of God. And we are not. Time magazine, um, back in March 2009, published a special issue entitled 10 Ideas That Are Changing the World Right Now. Being Time magazine, it's actually 10 Ideas Changing the United States right now, but that's that's probably the world, that's okay. But it it was a really interesting article. And one of those articles in there, they dubbed the New Calvinism. And by that term, they were referring to the growing popularity in the States of churches that hold to the Reformed doctrine of the sovereignty of God. The understanding that God truly is in control of the world and of our lives. And the article referred to American Christian leaders like Mark Driscoll and John Piper in that. And I don't want to get into the helpfulness or otherwise of that term, New Calvinism. Um, but, but when I read the article, 
I was struck by something one commentator said about what he saw as the attraction of a sovereign God to young Americans. And this is what he said. He said, a lot of young people grew up in a culture of brokenness, divorce, drugs, or sexual temptation. They have plenty of friends. What they need is a God. They have plenty of friends. What they need is a God. And I think it's, it's a God that John presents us with in Revelation 1. We'll see in a moment, Jesus is still loving and gentle with his people. But actually, we need to know that Jesus has the answers to our questions. I don't know about you, but when I'm sitting with a friend who is struggling, who is just unsure of what is going on in their lives, who is perhaps grieving over a lost prospect of life, over a lost loved one, when I'm sitting with that friend, I actually often feel powerless. I don't know what to say. I just can say very little. The best we can do is pray, but I come away frustrated that that as a friend I want to be able to do more. But actually what we need, it's not friends ultimately, though they are a gift from God. We need God himself. Because only he has the power we need to overcome the obstacles in front of us. Only he is worth trusting. Only he is able to keep us in the face of doubt and uncertainty and struggle. We need to see God in his majesty. And we need to point one another to God. Not claim that we've got the answers ourselves. But actually, John tells us, we can point them to someone who does have the answers. The risen Jesus. Jesus is a majestic king, John discovers here. And we should be in awe of him. As John did, we should fall at his feet, knowing just how powerful and glorious he is. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But, what should lead us to even greater worship is that this same majestic, risen Jesus does not leave John at his feet as though dead. You'll have noticed I always stopped midway through verse 17. But there is more. Because Jesus does something remarkable here. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. See, Jesus is not only a majestic king. He is also a loving king. And a king who is gentle with his people. See, perhaps the most amazing insight John gets into the kingship of Jesus here is that with all his power and majesty and glory and frightening majesty, he actually utilizes that power for the benefit of his people to extend his glory in the world. 
Just look again at verses 12 to 13 of John's vision. Let me just read a bit for us. Verse 12. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in verse 20, they're identified as the seven churches John is writing to. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. See, John discovers here, the risen Jesus is walking among the lampstands. He is with his people in their distress and their struggle. He is intimately involved with them in their struggle. See, the worldwide church matters to Jesus. The local church matters to Jesus. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you matter to Jesus. That same awe-inspiring, terrifying Jesus actually uses his power to show you mercy and show you grace and equip you to live for him. See, next week we're going to be looking at Jesus' letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. And we're going to see that Jesus has no illusions about his people. Jesus is painfully aware of the failings and weakness and sin and pettiness of Christians. He's not painting an idealized, airbrushed picture of a local church here. But Jesus' love is even more remarkable than that. Because Jesus loves the church, warts and all. Jesus chooses to show mercy to the church in spite of our weakness and our sin. And he's committed to his people because he has glorious purposes for us. The end of Revelation tells us, Revelation 21, one day we will be Christ's bride. He wants to lavish his love on us. We matter to him. And he cares for us. Do not be afraid, Jesus tells John. Those are words that those early Christians needed to hear. Do not be afraid because I am the king, Jesus is saying. And more than that, I am the king who stoops down and brings you to your feet as a restored and forgiven child of mine. In verses 5 and 6 of this chapter, sort of at the very outset of his book, John does something that the Apostle Paul does a lot. He interrupts what he's doing to sort of worship Jesus. It's always great to read the New Testament when the writers do that. I don't sort of finish our time looking at those words of praise in verses 5 and 6. But to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. See, these are are core truths that, that John just has to worship Jesus for. To him who loves us. That is the simplest truth we could ever learn. If you were a child growing up in a Christian community, you heard that week in, week out in Sunday school. And yet it is so vital for every Christian sitting here this morning to remember that. The risen Jesus loves you. Never doubt that. 
Because there will be events that will happen in your life that will make you doubt that. But he does love you in the face of suffering and opposition and trouble and uncertainty. Never doubt, John says, that this same risen Jesus loves you. And he freed us from our sins by his blood. Verse 5. Again, how do we know that Jesus loves us? How can we know that's not just wishful thinking? We know it because he's freed us by his blood. He set us free from sin at the cross. And that is a solid reminder to hold on to of Jesus' love and care for his people. And he hasn't finished with us either, John says, who has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. So I don't know how you generally think of yourself this morning, but if you're a Christian, John tells us here how Jesus thinks of you. You're a royal member of his kingdom. And you're a priest. You're a priest who can serve him, who can make him known to other people. And one day, he will transform you completely so you will serve in his presence and delight in his presence. It's as if Jesus looks at us, not just as what we are now, but one day we will be. And he's committed to ensuring that that transformation happens. This vision of the risen Jesus, it's Jesus as a majestic king, it's Jesus as a loving king. But John is confident we need to see this Jesus in all his glory and his majesty, in all the frightening aspects of his sovereignty. Because only he is strong enough to keep us from falling and to ensure that every one of his promises to us of forgiveness, of new life, of the new creation, he will keep them. And he will keep us.